Well, about a year ago, my child Sarah was filling out college applications. There was something in legalese that she had to sign digitally, and within it was the phrase, acts of God. You know, fires, floods, earthquakes, pandemics, the sort of thing that the lawyers want to make sure you understand is not the fault of the entity you're contracting with. And if it's not their fault, nor your fault, well, that must make it an act of God. Now, Sarah knew perfectly well that for thousands of years, the vast majority of humans have believed that the divine acts in the world. We are the descendants of those who have always claimed that God makes and keeps promises. Nevertheless, Sarah found this acts of God phrase hilarious. And yes, I did get her permission to share this story, and I think she's with us on Zoom today. In a secular society and an increasingly secular age, we so rarely come across talk about God actually doing stuff. And when people do talk publicly about God doing stuff, it's so often nonsense. When an irresponsible politician goes on an irresponsible news network and tells you that 9-11 was about God punishing gay people, or that an earthquake and ongoing poverty in Haiti are long overdue punishment for a 19th century slave revolt, we recoil, and well, we should. Even so, here we are in the church, still engaging with this ancient library called the Bible in which God acts more than frequently. I do believe that the most radical claim we make as people of faith, and I include in this not only Christians but also Jews and Muslims, is that the God who created everything is God who actually does stuff. There is an alternative view of God available to us. It's called deism. Like it or not, the vast majority of the founding fathers of the United States were deists, even those who claimed membership in the Episcopal Church. As its educated children of the Enlightenment, they reasoned that nothing made more sense than the idea of God as a clockmaker. That God built the machine we call the universe, wound it up, set it spinning, and then stepped away to watch it all play out. If they were right, then God doesn't actually do stuff anymore. We might imagine this version of God to be like a bearded, benevolent old man in the sky who claims to love us, but never actually does anything to help us. To me, that's a God worth not believing in. Or as the singer Derek Webb puts it, some gods deserve atheists, <laughs> or even deists. Well, these days, many who claim to be believers will settle for a vague notion that something created all this, and that really is profound and wonderful. It's a good place to start, but it's not a good place to stop. Episcopalians, by and large, are not deists. In the church, we understand God to make promises and then to follow through, as attested in the Bible, though not always in the same ways the authors of the Bible may have imagined. Anyway, if we were to agree that God does stuff, why start with natural disasters? Aren't these exactly the sorts of things most likely not to be caused directly by God? but by physical forces already long underway, we understand the science. 
Maybe God is responsible for setting all that up at the beginning and not preventing it now. But must we believe that God actively causes these things? And if we don't, do we then become deists? These are good questions for today, the first day of the Christian year. The first Sunday of Advent is a worthy time to begin things. A new spiritual practice, for instance, like making church a weekly habit, or investing a certain time of day in personal prayer, or getting involved in a ministry of the church. Today is the day we begin the whole story of Jesus again. And every year, we begin not at the beginning, but with talk of endings, of crisis and disaster. We hear from the prophet Isaiah today, from the third section of his book. Centuries before Jesus, this prophet is living in a time after a crisis. The time of the return from the exile and of reassessing and rebuilding. The restoration of Israel after its captivity in Babylon had already been proclaimed to be an act of God. But now the prophet doesn't feel so hopeful because things are getting challenging again. I can relate, can't you? Nearly four years after COVID walloped the world, we ourselves are in a time of political unrest, economic uncertainty, and an ongoing pandemic of both disease and misinformation. Oh, and then we still have climate change to address. Don't forget that. This prophet, too, is living in a time like ours. When people feel another major disaster must be right around the corner, but we don't really know how to prevent it. Into such a world, the prophet asks, God, why don't you just show up and fix everything? We have ancient stories about you doing stuff. Why not now? Why do you hide your face? The fact that we can't see you acting is the reason why we're sinning more than we might otherwise. Notice that the prophet is not suggesting that God might not exist. Nobody really went there in ancient times. They hadn't yet developed a world comfortable enough to fool themselves into what we call atheism. Instead, we hear, from ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Clearly there is God, the ancients would have reasoned, because we all came from somewhere. Yet still they wondered, God, why can't we see you more clearly? And why do you allow suffering to go on? Restore our fortunes, O oh God. Rebuild our world. Act, will you? Well, we also hear from Mark's gospel today, a passage known to Bible geeks as the Little Apocalypse. These are the last words Jesus speaks before we hear that the chief priests and the scribes are looking for a way to get rid of him. A disaster is coming, Jesus says. Cosmic shifts and the shaking of the heavens. What does it all mean? We don't know. They didn't know. Nobody actually knows. And whatever Jesus knows about it, he himself admits that he knows nothing about when all this might happen. If there had been insurance companies in first century Palestine, they might well have listened attentively and incorporated Jesus' words into their predictive analytics. The actuarial tables regarding acts of God should really have something about stars falling from heaven, shouldn't they? Can I insure my house against such things? 
Don't get me started about the actual real-life phenomenon of rapture insurance. <laughs> Not kidding. We all want to be prepared for things we can't predict or control. Yet Jesus won't give us specifics. He just says, keep awake. The point is not to try to predict when crisis will happen, whatever it is, but just the opposite. To live our lives as if the end were always just about here. What would that look like for you? Well, today I want you to hear this clearly. You are not required to believe that God causes the natural disasters that the lawyers and insurance companies are so concerned about. You don't have to believe that God sends misfortune into your life to punish you, to test you, or even to help you to grow. But what work does that leave for God to do? The more we come to understand how the universe works, will we someday find that there's no room left in it for acts of God? Let this be your big question to begin a new year. What does God actually do? I'll be the first to admit that hard evidence for God doing stuff feels rather thin on the ground. If God's actions in the world were easy to demonstrate, well, everyone would have roughly the same theology. But the world doesn't work that way. Nevertheless, the more deeply you immerse yourself in the life of a worshiping congregation, the more you may find a ring of truth to this notion that God is at work in the world and in your very being somehow. You'll come to spot evidence, pointers, never proof really, but good fodder for a hunch so strong you'll want to build your life on it. This will come from your interactions with other Christians, from hearing and absorbing the fascinating stories of their lives and also sharing your own with them and then getting back out there to spot these things in the world. A life in the church has built up my hunches about God so much that I'm willing to have been wrong about them my whole life. I do believe God acts. I believe that sometimes our prayers are part of the healing acts of God. I believe that sometimes our commitment to love is part of the transformative acts of God. It's all very mysterious. How could it not be? But I choose to live my life believing it. And as a new Christian year begins, I commit to believe it again and again and again. So I say to you something similar to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. You've got this. And you've got this because God's got all of us. Paul claims that God gives. God enriches, God strengthens, and God faiths us, if I may use faith as a verb. All this despite the fact that Paul is actively frustrated with the Corinthians as he's writing, as becomes evident later in the letter. But because, just because he's frustrated doesn't mean that he's going to write that God judges, God smites, God punishes. That's not what he's about. For something is indeed coming. Some big news is on the four winds, the answers to our most heart-rending questions blowing in with a scent of reassurance. The times they are a-changing. 
Evil forces are loose in the world, not because God causes them, but because they are cornered and lashing out in desperation. Evil is ultimately doomed. Maybe even the natural disasters to which we are so vulnerable are merely the labor pains that will birth a new world. And we may never be able to say, oh, here comes God. Indeed, we probably shouldn't. But we may well be able to look back even now and say, you know what? I think that was an act of God. I may be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong. But honestly, look at the hope. Look at the joy. Look at the ways we couldn't have predicted such an outcome. Could there be any more thrilling answer? 